The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals all around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from rainy Rome, Italy. This week, I caught up with William Green, a financial writer based in New York, to discuss his new book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, which chronicles how some of the world's most renowned investors, quote, win in markets and life. A lot of the subjects in William's book are household names in global finance, such as Oak Tree's Howard Marks, a past guest on this podcast, and Warren Buffett's sidekick Charlie Munger. But he looks at some others in the book who, I have to admit, I knew very little about beforehand, like Monish Pabrai, Matthew McLennan, Nick Sleeve, Tom Gaynor, a few others. I was pleased to read some of their stories and to chat with William about some of the commonalities of these highly successful asset managers. A hint, most of them are consummate game players. Many of them are loners who admit to having low emotional intelligence. And almost all of them exhibit a healthy fear that change is a constant and as a result, they should not overreach. As William, who in full disclosure is an old classmate of mine, describes them, they're practical philosophers. Give a listen. William, it is great to see you. You and I have not seen each other, I don't think, since we graduated from Columbia. Like 20, 30 years ago. 30 years ago. We're, we're middle-aged men now, but so much wiser. Well, you're both richer, wiser, and happier, which is the uh, the title of the book you've, you've just come out with, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. Um, apart from just catching up with you in general, I'm really keen to get some of the lessons here so that I too can be richer, wiser, and happier. Why don't we, uh, why don't we just sort of step back for a sec? What was, you know, th- this is a fascinating book. You, there's a bunch of different ideas um, that are both useful from like an investor perspective, you know, a trading perspective for, you know, to, for our audience of financial professionals, but it's also kind of like how to be happy doing it. How to, you know, it's, it's a much, it's, it's about ideas. Um, what was, what was the genesis for this? Why did you decide to write this book? Well, it's a, it's a very idiosyncratic book that grows out of my own strange obsession with investing, which I guess started about 25 years ago when my, my brother and I owned a, an apartment in London. This is long before property shot to the roof in, shot to the sky in London. And um, we sold the apartment and I suddenly had to figure out, well, what am I going to do with this fairly small windfall? And so I started to read obsessively about funds and stocks. And I think initially, I just became fascinated by this idea that here was an area of life where if you just thought better, you could make money really without getting your hands dirty, that it was, you know, I was a slightly indolent kid. And I thought, this is this is just wonderful. I can, I can if I learn to think, I'll, um, I'll be able to make money without actually having to do anything too hard. It was a bit of a delusion, as I would discover later. But then what was really wonderful was that because I was a young journalist, and I was writing over the years for things like Forbes and Fortune and Money and Time and Barons, I actually had this opportunity to indulge my new obsession. And so I would actually go interview these legendary investors. So I would do things like go off to the Bahamas for a day to spend the day with Sir John Templeton, who was probably the greatest global stock picker of the 20th century. Or I would interview Jack Bogle, who was the the founder of the Vanguard Group, which now manages what $6.2 trillion. So I had this extraordinary opportunity to meet these great investors. And gradually what I figured out as I hopefully somewhat matured over the years was that this wasn't just a way to get your, uh, to, to, to become rich without getting your hands dirty. That in some sense, 
there was this tiny subset of great investors who were, they were almost like practical philosophers. And they were looking at the world in this enormously thoughtful way. People like, like um, Charlie Munger or Bill Miller or Howard Marks, who, who all of whom I've interviewed for this book at, at great length, they, they're, they're exploring questions like, if the future is absolutely unknowable and everything is changing all of the time, how on earth do you make good decisions about the future? And so they became this really interesting lens through which I could see the world. And, and what I ended up doing is interviewing, I'd say about 40 of these great investors for this book specifically. So it gave me this opportunity to, to sort of burrow down into these big questions, like how do you deal with change? Right. How, do you, how do you deal with change? Well, Not only- you mentioned that they're, they're practical philosophers, interesting. You call them in the, in the book, consummate game players. And I think of like the, 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 I don't know, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett playing bridge. And I think of other people like David Einhorn who do, you know, who, who play poker. Um, but you also, so I can understand sort of some, how these, these guys think a bit and you do go through it in the book. You also talk about some of the things that they seem to have low emotional intelligence. Some of them are loners. Some of them are, you know, sort of maybe have tr trouble with, emotion, which I suppose comes a little bit, that's, that's to their advantage. I mean, the worst thing in, a, in as an investor is to be emotional about it. Is that right? Absolutely. And it, it, it was very striking when I went, say, to Los Angeles to interview Charlie Munger. And I was talking to him about how he had been able, say, to buy something like Wells Fargo, what he described as the, the bottom tick of the market in, I think, March 2009. And I said to him, when the market's tumbling and everything's falling apart, do you actually feel these emotions that the rest of us are feeling like anxiety or fear? And he said, no, no, not at all. And, <laughs> and I said, so you're not actually fighting the kind of emotions that the rest of us are trying to suppress. And he said, no. And he said, Warren is, is wired exactly the same way. He, he doesn't feel them either. And, and then when I talked to someone, say like Howard Marks, who oversees something like $120 billion at Oak Tree, I talked to him about the financial crisis. And this is this is a period where he was investing, I think, $500 million a week for 15 weeks and ended up making eight or $9 billion in profits. And I said to him, was it a difficult period emotionally? And he said, no, no, I don't remember it being difficult at all. And, and I said to him, are you- It's quite you, funny, because I don't you remember, I remember the, the financial crisis or even indeed, you know, March of a year ago when COVID, hit. you know, I did these, these moments when markets tumble and they're just, it almost, feels like the sky is falling. And even as a dispassionate journalist, I, I can't say I feel no emotion. I don't think journalists are very dispassionate at all. I think one of the things that's distinctive about us is that we tend to think always that the sky is either falling or about to fall. So we, we sort of predicted all sorts of It makes of a better headline. Come on, William. It, it does. It does. It probably doesn't make us great investors. I, I interviewed one guy, a famous investor called Chuck Acre, and I was, I was telling him what a pessimist I was sort of temperamentally, just naturally, I tried to work against it. And he sort of said dryly, good luck with that. You know, and there was a, there was a sense that, you know, if you, don't, if you don't think that the future is going to be better and better, it's quite hard to invest. Although, I mean, so, so it, it's easier, I think, if you're a venture capitalist, you're a bit of a dreamer, right? You assume that the future right. is blue skies. I think a lot of the investors that I focus on are much more hardcore value-oriented survivors who, who are very rational about positioning themselves to survive a future that could look like anything. And so, so 
Yeah. They're not they're not blue sky dreamers. They're they're realists and dispassionate pragmatists, I would say. But I'd say you, you have a quote in the book from Howard Marks where he says, quote, most of the time the end of the world doesn't happen. <laughs> Just kind of I get yeah. it. it's a sort of a wry comment because anyone who can actually reflect on whether the world blew up or not, of course. It's not possible, but it is. It is kind of. It is true at the end of the day, right? So if you just main, you you kind of keep your cool. Um, I suppose that's 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 got to be an idea worth cloning. Yeah, I think one of one of the things that you need to be aware of is just how you're wired. And so, for example, Howard Mark says that he has a slight inclination towards fearfulness. So he has to know. That, that that could color his analysis of where the future is going. And so, so he said, during the financial crisis, for example, he just, you know, he, he knew there were tremendous risks that the world was on the verge and that it could teeter over the cliff. But he said, people aren't paying me to be a chicken. They're paying me to, uh, to think rationally about the future. And, he's, and he basically said that the, the odds at that point um, I, that it, it was such an extreme moment that he, he said you had to decide, well, is the world going to end or is it not going to end? And if it's not going to end and the financial system isn't going to melt down, then this has to be one of the greatest buying opportunities of all time. And if I miss it, then, it, then I'm, I'm, I'm neglecting my job and I'm, I'm being the chicken that I have to guard against being. Yeah. So I that mean, was a kind of binary moment, whereas usually what yeah. people like, like, like Howard Marks are doing is they they have this array of different probabilities for how the future could work and 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 they they assign probabilities to them but he said that that moment was so extreme that it became binary really it's like are, are we going to survive or is it all going to fall apart yeah and i suppose thinking about probabilities one of the, the themes that seems to be is to sort of build resilience into their strategies can you explain a little bit how they do that yeah, I think one of the most striking characteristics of the great investors is the way they're always looking for these asymmetric bets where there's limited downside and massive upside. And, and you see this really in, in, in people like Joel Greenblatt, for example, who I wrote about at length in the book, who um, famously at Gotham Capital averaged something like 40% a year for 20 years, which means you turn a million dollars into, I think, $836 million. And he just... He's, he said that the things he bets most on, or at least in those days when he was running this super concentrated fund, were things where there was basically no risk of loss. And so there was one point where um, I think it was Marriott and host Marriott were splitting apart. And, and he finds this sort of ugly duckling, the bit that everyone thinks is toxic, but that was actually massively undervalued. And it had, it had more assets basically than you were paying for with the, the market cap of the company. And so he put something like 40% of, of his assets just on that one stock, because he said there was basically no chance of losing. And so I think they're constantly thinking in terms of, of if, if things go wrong, um, how could, catastrophic could it be? So, so someone like, like Jeffrey Gundlach, who is often called the, the king of bonds, who manages something like $140 billion, he said to me, you measure, long, you measure success really by your longevity in this business. And so he said, he's constantly thinking about um, if I'm wrong, what's the consequence? And so there's this, there's this constant focus on the downside risk of everything that you do and, and, right. and just putting the odds in your favor systematically, 
Whereas most of us, actually, if you think about how we, we approach life, it's much more haphazard and ad hoc. And I would say what, what these guys are doing is, is just very consistently stacking the odds very marginally in their favor in every area of life. Yeah. I mean, one of the things uh, you also, I mean, you can have this, this level of conviction and someone can throw a bunch of their assets or make a big bet. It seems that one other theme is that they don't overreach too much. So, and one of the, the ways one overreaches as we saw recently with, um, with Archigos Capital Management uh, is, is through leverage. What's their, what's their sort of dictum or what, what lesson does one pull away about the use of financial instruments like leverage or? You know, Howard Marks talked very eloquently about this, about, about the key to survival and resilience really being not overreaching. And, and like many of the great truths in investing in life, this is pretty simple. I mean, the, the, if you think about um, the things that get people in trouble, it's living beyond their means, overreaching, getting carried away by emotion, getting carried away by, by bubbles, buying things that they don't understand. And so when you look at people like Sir John Templeton, who I interviewed, or, or, or Munger, or, or Bill Miller, or Howard Marks, this, this theme of just survival, of avoiding catastrophe, come, comes through again and again. And I think because they're realists and pragmatists, and they recognize that the future is unknowable, I think this focus on, on simply reducing the possibility that you're going to be, as, as Buffett said, dependent on the kindness of strangers at the worst possible moment, or as he said, uh, dependent on the kindness of friends who suddenly have a liquidity crisis. That's, <laughs> that's really key. You, you don't want to position yourself in the way that Blanche Dubois uh, was in, in, uh, uh, to rely on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, you also pointed. I think it's Marx. So we're spending a lot of time on Howard here, but we could talk about others. But you sort of one idea was to avoid "quote unquote" future-oriented investments. Um, I guess the only thought I, you know, right now, or let's say the past few years, the market has been rewarding future-oriented investments. You think of something like a Tesla, which you know has gone through the roof. Um, all sorts of tech companies, and some of them with with unproven models, or certainly without with, without uh, you know, great profitability engines attached to them. What have they, have they, a lot of the guys you interview here are basically value investors. They're from that Benjamin Graham Dodd type, um, you know, school that, that of course inspired Warren Buffett. Um, but, you know, and the idea is to buy uh, stuff that's cheap and, but will be more, more valuable in the future. You know, they have real assets, they have real earnings, they have real uh, business models. Um, it's, in this market, it's been hard. You know that that hasn't been exactly a rewarded investment discipline. What, one of the one of the things that I really focused on in this book is on investors who've thrived over decades. I, I'm not really interested in people who hit it big over one cycle because I think even someone extraordinary like Peter Lynch, who I interviewed um, about 20 years ago and who I quote briefly in the book. He only really had a career for about 13 years, I think, running, running a fund. And so, yeah, he was amazing. But that was a period that happened to favor the kind of large companies, the kind of growth companies, the kind of retail stocks that he happened to like. So it's very hard to know whether he would have done well over 40, 50, 60 years. And I think for most of us as regular investors, 
the the idea of of what a, a remarkable investor called Matthew McLennan, who I interview, uh, he he refers to resilient wealth creation, and that strikes me as a much wiser goal for most of us. I mean, does it really matter to me whether I get lucky during one cycle, or does it matter to me whether I reach the destination of basically being financially independent and secure and being able to send my kids to college and being able to retire and not having to work for people that I dislike. And, you know, that's, that's really the goal. And so I think one of the things that you have to do is, is ask yourself, well, what, what is the desirable destination here? Am I, am I a professional money manager who needs to beat the market in order to justify my existence? In which case you're going to play a somewhat different game. Um, and, and, and for example, you might concentrate very heavily in the way that someone like Manish Pabrai does or Charlie Munger does or a, a lot of the people that I write about in the book. That's a, that's a particular game that suits the very, very best investors. For most of us, it's more important to focus on survival and resilience and, and not getting knocked out of the game because uh, compounding is so powerful. And so these basic principles like buying things at a discount to what they're worth have proven to be pretty much timeless notions. And, and someone like Joel Greenblatt said to me that when, when he really tried to reduce the, the game of investing to its purest essence, he basically said, figure out what something is worth and pay a lot less. And he said, that's it. And then, then you're just waiting for this, conver sorry, this convergence between what the market thinks something is worth and, and, and what it's actually worth. And what he said to me is, once you realize that that's the entire game, you realize that most people are just engaged in fruitless nonsense, that they're just, you know, they're spending their whole time discover, you know, discussing sharp ratios and sortino ratios and, uh, you know, all of this very esoteric stuff. And so I, I wouldn't dismiss the timeless principles of investing, because if you're actually trying to build, a, build, build your fortune, build your security over 30, 40, 50, 60 years, is it better to buy things for less than they're worth or better to buy things for more than they're worth and just hope that some greater fool is going to come along and, and take that asset off your hands? That, that seems to me a form of fragility in your life that probably is, is, is wiser to avoid if what you're looking for is survival and resilience and, and to, keep, to keep your wealth growing over 20, 30, 40, 50 years, which is my goal. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so, okay. So out of this, what does your portfolio look like, William? Well, you I'm somewhat you, schizophrenic. You, or at the end of it, the day, do you do what all these guys in the end, all the professionals seem to say, oh, just buy the index? I'm, I'm torn. So I've held two index funds, which are basically the Vanguard International Fund and the Vanguard Total Market Fund. So basically a, a US one and, a, and an international one. Um, so just two funds that I've held for more than 20 years. And then there are a couple of hedge fund managers that I invest with. And they're much more from the model of Munger, um, Buffett, people like that. And so they, one of them owns only 10 stocks and most of the money is in a, in a very small handful of those stocks. I, I'd say probably 60, 70% of the assets are in about six of the stocks. And that to me is if, if you're going to try to beat the market and you're going to try to have outsized returns, that to me seems like a very intelligent strategy, that kind of concentration. Yeah. And he's someone who ignores 
um, ignores the market basically. And he's just trying to buy extremely good companies that are growing their value over many years. And then he, he just ignores what everyone else is doing. And so I'm sort of torn, I think, between an acceptance of my own limitation, a, a knowledge that I'm not, I'm, I'm not really well suited to picking stocks myself. I, I, I'm a bit too lazy. I don't have many mathematical skills. I, 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 I take pretty seriously Joe Greenblatt's warning that if you, if you buy stocks, individual stocks, without really knowing what you're doing, he says it's, it's, it's like walking through a dynamite factory with a lit match. And he says, you might survive, but you're still an idiot. And every few years, I ignore this. So I ignored it during um, during the meltdown of um, of the market in about March with COVID. And, and I cloned something that Monish Pabrai did, where I saw that in this moment where the market was totally falling apart, malls were being shut. He he bought a mall company. He bought 13% of um, Seritage Growth Properties. And I just, that for me is temperamentally. You Sears been off of something. Yeah, exactly. And that struck me as a really beautiful idea. I mean, there, I, 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 I didn't really have the knowledge to, to tell whether there was a possibility that it would go bankrupt or not. But I knew that Berkshire Hathaway, I think, was, um, was the lender and that they were unlikely to destroy it. I knew also that um, Buffett had an enormous position himself in his personal portfolio. And so I thought, well, here I get to, I get to clone Monish who is the ultimate cloner of, of Buffett and Munger and the like. And so there was a certain sort of temperamental pleasure to it. And I, I think I still have that part of my character that I had very early as an investor, which is the, the desire to be a smart aleck and outwit the crowd. And it's a, it's a very dangerous part of my personality. But on, on the other hand, one, one advantage that I have, if there's anything temperamentally that I have as an advantage, it's, it's that I am able to buy stuff when... Um, when it's falling apart and when everyone hates everything. I, maybe as a journalist, we're kind of naturally outsiders and, and a, a bit contrarian. And so I actually have bigger problems when everything's going well. And I, and I start to worry that it's all gonna fall apart. When it's, when it's falling apart, I'm like, there, you see, I knew it was gonna fall apart. And I become right. kind of calm and joyful. It's a, so I think, I think if there's any takeaway, I think it's to have some sense of your own personality. And, and how you're wired and how to exploit your particular wiring. So there's, there's another fund that I've owned for more than 20 years. And it's, it's run by Guy Spear, who's a friend of yours oh, yeah. and mine. And, yeah. and the fact that he's a close friend of mine means it, it'll be really hard for me ever to sell it um, because I, I would feel like I was betraying his trust and friendship. And so it, that quirk in my personality has enabled me to sit patiently in this fund for 20 years. And I've said to him, I regard it as a 40 year investment. And so, you know, I know that the more decisions I make, the more opportunities for stupidity, for, for stupidity there are. So if I can tilt, tilt the odds in my favor by being more patient, by using the quirks of my personality, it's a, it's a helpful thing to do, I think. Is that how, so, so at the end, to, when I see you next, um, hopefully it won't be after 30 years, uh, William, but yeah. um, richer, wiser and happier will be. What, so is there any sort of thought like parting, like is there one way to be the, to, to fulfill the happier part? Because these are all very rich people. Um, but as the Beatles once sang, money can't buy you love. What's the sort of, what's well, the happier I hope, bit? I hope people will read the epilogue pretty seriously, where I focus on people like Arnold Vandenberg, who I describe as 
probably the single greatest role model of anyone I found in the investment business. And I, I regard him in many ways as the most successful human being I've encountered in the investment business. And when I see someone like Arnold, he's, he, he's, he's built a great um, investment business and investment record over decades, having had the most unlikely circumstances, having grown up in hiding. I mean, he, he was born on the same street as Anne Frank. Um, and his parents were in Auschwitz and, you know, he was dealt the worst hand possible. And he's just a wonderful human being. And, and he embodies a lot of what I, what I hope people will learn from the book about, about the path to happiness. And one of the things that I write about in writing about Arnold is he took control of his inner life. He really became obsessed in the same way that Sir John Templeton was uh, with, with, gaining control of his own emotions and his own thoughts. And they've done it in different ways. But this is a, this is a theme throughout the book that you really need to work on, on your own inner landscape and on your resilience. And the other thing that I would say about Arnold, which is really lovely, which is really simple, is just that he's the most sharing and kind and decent bloke. And I just see the joy that he gets out of, out of looking after other people. And he said to me that he said, you know, I thank God every day for the money because it just enables me to help other people. And he said, it doesn't really affect me. It's not like it, it's not like it um, makes me unable to eat, uh, you know, good food. And, and basically, he's a, he's a vegan who only eats like beetroot smoothies anyway. So so it hasn't it, it hasn't hurt him in any practical way. And I just see the joy that he takes from um, helping other people. And I, I think that's really key. And then someone like Ed Thorpe, who I write about, who's extraordinary, who's I, I describe as the, the greatest game player in the history of investing. He said to me at the end of the day, it's, it's really all about relationships. And if you're trying to stack the odds in your favor um, to have a happy and successful life, you have to focus on your relationships because the most important thing is the people you spend your time with. And so I think like most great truths, these things are pretty simple, but I think it's I think it's really helpful to look at people who hit the jackpot financially and to see what actually matters at the end of the day, what, what the money gives them, which are things like security and independence and, and the ability to live in, in deep alignment with who they are in all of its peculiarity. But it also gives them the ability to help other people. And I, I think when I look at the, the investors who are happiest, they're certainly not the selfish ones. They're, they're the ones who, who build relationships with other people, who are very philanthropic, who are good to their partners. It was very striking to me that, that, that someone like Howard Marks really takes pride in the fact that he hasn't had an argument with his partner, Bruce Karsh, in three decades. And, and Munger, likewise, when I talked to him about what constitutes a happy life, he immediately talked about his relationships. And he, and he said, you know, I've been, a, I've been a good partner to Warren and Warren has been a marvelous partner to me. And he said, the best, way, the best way to get a good partner is to be a good partner, just as the best way to get a good spouse is to be a good spouse. And so I think, I think there's something quite, um, quite simple about these insights. And yet, as, as, as Munger often says, he says, take a, take a simple idea and take it seriously. And so, Part of what I hope people will get from the book is that they'll they'll see they'll see these things that have worked over time, these forms of behavior, these ways of thinking that have worked. And, and if you find something that resonates with you where you think, yeah, that really makes sense, clone it, make, make it a really central part of the way you operate. And, 
And what Manish Pabrai, the, the shameless cloner, points out is that when you take a handful of these great ideas, these very simple ideas, and you clone them, there's what Munger calls a Lollapalooza effect, where they kind of reinforce each other. And, and over time, there's a, there's a compounding of the advantage that you gain from, from a few of these very simple habits that reinforce each other. Good, well, thanks, William. Um, appreciate that and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you so much. It's been a treat to talk to you and I, 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 hope, it'll, I hope it'll be in less than 30 years the next time. Absolutely. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner, New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you get your high-quality podcasts and pick up The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and at Twitter at Breaking Views and at Rob Wompcox. Arrivederci.